Hello and welcome to another episode of Not Knowing About Poetry, a podcast series in which we continue to talk about the influence and role that Renaissance poetry has on a much more recent body of work. I'm joined today for the second time by Callie Gardner. Callie helped me with the most wonderful contribution to the first series of the podcast and I'm just delighted to have them back for a second time and a very different kind of episode. So thanks for coming on today, Callie. Thanks for having me. So uh, Callie is a poet and critic and publisher who has been and is involved with all sorts of projects related to poetry and new writing, one of which uh, their book of poems, Naturally It Is Not, was published by the 87 Press in 2018. And I've just been really happy to start reading in the last couple of weeks. Um, and. Callie, just because that's the, the thing I've sort of got in my hands at the moment on my desk, I just wondered um, if there's anything you'd like to say about that book or any other um, writing projects or activities you've got uh, in hand at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, the book is from the 87 Press, which if people aren't familiar with it, has a fantastic list of poets. They've done um, uh, books by Verity Spot, Casper Heinemann, um, all kinds of uh, all kinds of fantastic writers. So yeah, I can't recommend them highly enough. Okay, great. So yeah, I think this is this is maybe the first book I've got from the eighty seven press, but um, certainly not going to be the last. Today we're going to be looking at Shakespeare again, together with the twentieth century poet June Jordan, which is which is pretty exciting. So we're not only looking at Shakespeare again, we're looking at his sonnets again. And I think there's something worth doing in that because it seems the sonnets are just a, a constant resource for a lot of poets. So when, we, when I talk to Mao about uh, sonnets in the context of Eric Langley, we did have a bit of a think about why the sonnet might be an interesting form, might be a valuable form to people during or after a period when it's been sort of quite quite popular um, in, I don't know, in a widespread way, whether whether an interesting way or not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain. If it's obvious why it might appeal, I just wonder, Kelly, sort of overall, what do you think the sonnet does offer contemporary poets creatively and critically and and does the renaissance sonnet have a particular purchase for for people writing and and thinking about literature today yeah it's interesting that isn't it how the renaissance in a lot of our minds is this like locus of poetry it's that where the where poetry kind of originates and and comes from obviously it's not the only place for that in sort of history when we think back we probably think about the romantics as well as being as being origins of traditions but when it comes to the sonnet that is very firmly I think historical historically located in the renaissance when it makes its its entry into English and with Shakespeare as its most notable practitioner so maybe it's just that that like sonnets feel really poemy and they're also one of the forms that is easiest to master, like it's easier than a villanelle or a pantoum or one of these other very highly formalized poems. And so they make a, they make quite a good exercise for a, for, for a young poet to test their skills against. But then they also 
make a good ground for experimentation, as you see with, um, well, as you see with uh, with Langley, and as you see with all all kinds of poets, really. But um, yeah, June Jordan is another great example. So that's interesting. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really nice summary because the son sonnet sort of provides a lot of entry points, whether you're mm -hmm. just trying to write something that looks a bit like a poem and feels like a poem, or you're figuring out some some departure from yeah. from poetry. Um, it's a useful um, marker to have. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, do you so do you think do you think this the sonnet from the Renaissance is maybe more important now than the sonnet as it was produced by romantics or is is that not a distinction you you particularly thought about because that is quite those are quite different uh engagements with that form yeah definitely um yeah and i think well okay so you definitely do still get a kind of romantic style sonnet in terms of like uh a, a treatment of a theme a much more um uh not necessarily about a like interpersonal love relationship, but about an experience of um, like the sublime um, in Keats's first looking into Chapman's Homer, or you have like Wordsworth looking at at, at London and um, trying to trying to pack that experience um, into you know of the on Westminster Bridge trying to pack that into a a sonnet-sized um, container, but then I think we've also got the history of the Victorian sonnet, which maybe again moves us away from that and into a more, um, you know, the Victorians maybe again pick up sonnets as being about interpersonal relationships, about and um, not necessarily the most major relationship in a, in a person's life, but a sonnet is a poem of getting swept up in feeling, which is one of its paradoxes because it's also a very formalized poem and it's a poem that's a poem form that's set up for having arguments. So it's a sort of ready-made um, paradox, a ready-made strange situation where you're having these almost philosophical type arguments about 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 personal relationships, about love, about sex, um, and that's kind of its paradox. And I don't, yeah, I see what maybe with the Jordan poems that we're talking about today, um, particularly, I see a kind of return to that that original Renaissance style of the like love disputation. Um, if you could just summarize it into one phrase, but it's not just the when Jordan translates her sonnet, um, but also the other sonnets that she writes as well. You can kind of see the markers of that. Um, yeah, of, of the of the argument, the persuasion, the, the, the disputation of trying to pick out using poetic language and conceits and, you know, this kind of like metaphorical, analogical thinking um, to think about something which is suddenly a, uh, or not suddenly, but which in the Renaissance becomes increasingly a topic of conversation and, and, and discussion. So I think that's 
that's that's really nice sort of um, way to introduce this. And I think that's what's so interesting about Jordan is that we we don't just see like a convenient package. That's not what the sonnet is for for Jordan. When we, when and we'll see when we get to her, um, but it it does seem to sort of really take into heart some of the I- ideas of what a sonnet can do and and what a poem can do or should do um skipping over the the romantic period and going right back to those those sort of very canonical shakespearean sources um and yeah i i I suppose sort of that idea of picking up ways of arguing or making a point maybe i haven't thought about things like that so i'm i'm really grateful to have this opportunity to talk about the way the way June Jordan has done that and I think that's actually going to cast a light on on a lot of my sonnet reading moving forwards um so should we should we just get stuck into 116 and see if we can talk about and discover what the sort of logical process of of this this poem is then we can we can get into to, to Jordan and uh and see what she what she does with that. Uh, Shakespeare's sonnet, 116. So, okay, so not only are we doing Shakespeare again, not only doing Shakespeare's sonnets again, but this is like a really, really famous one, a tediously famous one. I think it's uh, um, <laughs> unfair, unfair or fair to say. And I think that will that will come up in, in our discussion, perhaps. Um, so this is the poem that starts, Let Me Not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Um, the kind of poem that you might read at a wedding if you didn't really like poetry all that much, but you just wanted something that looked like a poem and sounded like a poem to read. And, and probably many people would be completely happy with that. And uh, I, I wouldn't deny them that experience at all. Um, I think it's been uh, widely imitated. Callie, you've, you've mentioned to me Kingsley Amos's poem, an ever fixed mark, which which quotes a line directly, um, and and obviously there there are um, uh, renditions within bigger collections. Are there any other standout um, interpretations of this poem you can think of, but other other than the Jude, June Jordan, which we'll get to? Um, I, I'm, I'm I'm happy if there's not any, but um, there might um, be something in your mind. Yeah, I mean, um, there isn't any that stand out to me particularly but it is as you say a very um a very widely read poem and i but i think part of what that conceals is that especially because like it has marriage in the first line and as you say it's popular as a as a wedding poem um and many poems are sort of victims of their own success in this way because we don't tend to read it that closely maybe because we think we already know what it has to offer but when you look at this poem it is actually like quite weird in the way that and and there are sort of bits that sort of seem like they make an obvious sort of sense but then they don't when you peel them back a little bit and I think a lot of the really big famous Shakespeare sonnets are like that actually they have a sort of substratum of of linguistic oddness um which can be quite rewarding to to pull out and 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 looking at that Kingsley Amos poem today again which you didn't like and I don't I don't think I've particularly got much time for um that quotes that line the, the, you know there's the ever fixed mark that's maybe an example of sort of taking a um 
of making a fairly facile trope out of something that might be more complicated. Yeah, and I'm, I mentioned the King's Lemus poem when we spoke about it before, um, just because that always, it does always stick in in my mind. But it's probably not one. I mean, King's Lemus is is not you know very popular or widely read at the moment. I think it's fair to say, but this poem in particular is a really like reactionary homophobic poem but the idea of it is that you know your your early love experiences your youthful love experiences are with you for the rest of your life and inform the rest of your life and I think you know you are getting to a stage where it's just a period in the renaissance where something sort of crystallizes in the relationship between um you know, romantic love and sexual love, just kind of, and and friendship, you know, and the idea of like having a one person that you really connect to is these ideas really start to like, you know, those those things look different in the medieval period, certainly in medieval literature, but having a literature of you're the one person I connect with like this and... I have to prove it, I have to demonstrate it because it seems so remarkable. Um, you know, there isn't a form that is designed to convince people of that in that way necessarily in European poetry before um, before the sonnet comes along, which isn't to say that there aren't love poems, but maybe those love poems are more narrative and less um, less like disputational. I yeah, so I think that's interesting that if we're that it's 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 the idea of not just picking up the Renaissance as like some far, far away, some land far, far away that we've all forgotten about, but oh look, it's it's universal humanism. But um it's opening up a particular style of a particular sorry it's opening up a particular closing down or it's yeah, um yeah. Whatever, whatever enlightenment has come since then, it's it's predicated on 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 a wide range of of limitations. Yeah, and that also influences how we read these poems because there's a, you know, it's very widely known the kind of division between young man and dark lady sonnets, and a lot of the interpretation of them over the years, I feel like, has been people trying to think about that. A lot of ink has been spilled on teasing out that distinction of who the sonnets are written to. And um, yeah, I just think there's a much more, if we let sonnets just be about that, then we lose a lot of the the things that they were about at the time. And not part of that closing down is, yeah, in the Renaissance, there's a kind of crystallizing of, of those relationships, but there's also since then has been a closing down of like how what we can read these sonnets as being as well. Well, let's have a read of it then and see what we can open up and see what's going on and see how how um how June Jordan's gonna deal with it in a little while. So I think uh maybe maybe I'll read this one okay. and um I'll leave the, the the reading later to you. Um but here we go Shakespeare's sonnet one one six Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. 
Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fall, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So you, you've already sort of mentioned about the first line that it, men it mentions marriage. <laughs> so it's sort of doomed. Um, and what was, your, what was your theory of the first line, Callie, that you told me about before, about how, uh, how it influences a poem and how it, it, it dictates the sort of the, the narrative flow that people pick up from it? Yeah, well, I, I felt like people, when people quote this poem or read this poem, they often mis, misread, misquote this first line as the marriage of two minds. And my feeling about that is that it's, it's intentional because true and two are so close to each other. And when you've got marriage and true minds, it just, it, Two is the natural mistake. So we're being encouraged even to make that mistake of, of, of two minds. Um, but actually the, and so people read this at, at, at weddings and so people see it as like a kind of ultimate like monogamy marriage poem. But I think when you really look at this poem, it's not foreclosing other, you know, possibilities it doesn't necessarily have to be about a relationship that's taking place um within the confines of a marriage and it's certainly not um glorifying the institution of marriage in the way that where one to i've never chosen a poem for a wedding but where one choosing a poem for a wedding i would think you would want to be you know generally bigging up that institution but that's not what this poem is doing at all right it's it's talking about something much more um much more kind of that can be that can be found in different elements of of knowing somebody i think um well i was just gonna sort of you know i think sticking with that 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 deliberate miss reading of true and two i think that is a really nice starting point because what's the difference between the marriage of true minds and the marriage of two minds yeah. um so sort of two is that is maybe the less interesting thing to say but then true comes with its problems as well so true, a true mind so is these two minds two minds that are true does it is it too honest is that is it just honest people two honest people um is it uh, a mind that uh you know loves justice that loves the truth um you know it's also i just also think about like when you when you true something like a bike wheel you know you're making it straight so these are are these erect people i hate to sort of read you know so vulgarly but i think you know it's, it's there and it no, but it, yeah it's definitely yeah for sure it's the sort of joke that you get in this sort of poem you know vulgar vulgar or not usually it is if there's a vulgar reading to be had then you can have it and thinking about i also think about like the many instances in done where like 
And this maybe goes as connects as well to the star to every wandering bark as well. But the many moments in Dunn where, um, you know, finding home and, uh, you know, completing a, a navigation or completing a calculation has this kind of like um, sexual undertone, you know, that it grows erect as that comes home where he's talking about the compasses and I forget which poem it is that he's talking about the compasses, but there's lots of moments like these of like, um, yeah, truth equals straightness equals equals erectness equals sexuality so it's definitely part of it and also you've got that word impediments as well you asked me about the first line but I'm I'm reading I'm reading onto the second line with that first sentence Um, but obviously impediments that that first sentence is really like teasing us about um, the marriage ceremony as well because if there's um, that's part of the or was at the time part of the the marriage ceremony like if there's any impediment to these people being together then um you know then tell us and he's saying see that thing where you get up at the at the wedding and make an objection he's saying in this poem i would never do i would never do this i'm not planning on doing this but you know it is very tongue-in-cheek as well because again it's not about marriage it's about the marriage of true minds. And so that then begs the question, well, what about the marriage of untrue minds? Is there a marriage of untrue minds to which you would admit impediments? And, and it makes me think about like, this is what I'm talking about, the substratum of weirdness, right? Is how actually, if you really think about that word true, how are you supposed to read it? Because it implies untrue minds, it implies flawed marriages that 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 don't involve love and it's saying you hear all the things that love doesn't do actually and you think well people do sometimes do these things or relationships do sometimes include these features so what about those relationships um which is it also becomes an interesting part of of love poetry going forward that like oh there are there are relationships that are not good um and we want to avoid being one of those as well so true, yeah. So tr- so the word true itself Im- implies some exclusions, but mm. those exclusions then become completely explicit in line two. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds or bend with the remover to remove. Yeah. Um, and uh, I haven't... This is a sort of poem where I wish I'd done loads of preparation. I could give you the critical history of what people have said alters when it alteration finds what that what that means um but as a quick um passing you know the the love that sees something change and then changes itself that's not love mm-hmm. um I'm, I, I'm still puzzled about bends with the remove to the remove, to remove so i'm going to leave that out at the moment but this seems like quite a, a basic exclusion a love that adapts to its circumstances like that doesn't seem like a particularly untrue kind of love or a particularly problematic kind of love even but that's you know somehow being pushed away um you know if you're embarking on a relationship with someone probably you'd hope you'd hope the love alters a bit when it alteration finds i mean i you know, people people have different experiences but that would be that'd be my feeling so is this is this sort of a is this sort of one of the so- these sonnets where we've actually got these 
sort of flaws and non sequiturs and like just nonsense that can't have really made sense 400 years ago, let alone now. Um, oh, it's, also about, it's also about paradoxes, right? And I think most readings of this poem that I've come across try to read uh, a number of different possible meanings into the bend and the bend and the bend, the remove, the remover, the alter and the alteration. People try and read different meanings into that and gloss it in um, in, in in different ways. But yeah, ultimately I think that it's undecidable um, to use the, you know, to, to use a Derridian term about it is it's undecidable what kind of relationship it is that that's describing, because we don't know what that's exactly supposed to mean. If you take it on its most literal meaning, bends with the remover to remove, love doesn't, and then you put the syntax back together, love doesn't bend with the remover to remove. So love doesn't what alter itself, unshape, misshape itself, turn itself around, and then removing, is it removing in the sense of like moving away or taking away? Because that's one of those those strange words that can have different so who is the remover is it someone who's removing so oh you're leaving I'm going to remove with you and he's saying you know you could read that line as a like anti-long distance relationships line which Shakespeare would have known a lot about long distance relationships having a wife in 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 the country and uh and living in London so maybe that's what it's about you know but there's I just think in that initial sentence maybe it gets it gets more it unravels a bit as it goes on, but that initial four lines, that first quatrain is so, so tight and strange um, that I think even the the in-depth commentaries have not, have not really got their heads around it. And I think this is sort of, you know, when we talk about the undecidability or ambiguity or whatever in, in poetry, it can seem sort of self, self-serving, but, um, but I think... It, it's just fascinating to find that in a poem that's not like from some dark corner, but like is, you know, summoned as like a, the most conventional, banal statement of, of love, the most obvious commonplace. Oh, it's Shakespeare's sonnet 116. But instantly you actually start reading it and somehow that, 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 that doxa, that commonplace is, um, it undoes itself. But okay, so so that's a nice handle I think we've got on the first four lines, and and I think your your idea is that the you know you get that marriage in the first line, and then people just sort of turn off for a little bit, but yeah. then they'll but then they'll wake up again when you get around line five, and it's line five where you get oh no it is the ever fixed and it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests, and is never shaken. Mm-hmm. Um, which again maybe feels, you know, it's got that feel of consistent consistency and certainty and the ever fixed mark. Um, but then, like, I don't know. I, I maybe I haven't thought about it enough. But like, so love is this mark outside of these two minds or these true minds. It's something separate to those things. It exists. Um, you know, outside of a relationship, well, where does it exist? How does it exist? What are you, what is this mark that you're, you're following and is, is you're so completely sure that it's never shaken? I mean, it, it seems completely absurd now, sort of trying to read it. Yeah, and it, love is the mark, right? So it, 
and if you you go further into that metaphor, it's the the looks on tempest is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, and you you know you identify the star and the mark as being um, things that you will know where they are, and that you can navigate by them. Again, going into that that theme of the relationship between navigation and like working out a relationship that you also find in 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 done and then yeah as you say it's not clear like okay so who's in the bark who's in the boat like is it is it the lovers is it does each lover have their own boat is one boat is one boat the lover and the mark is the other person and if so which is supposed to be which and where do you you know where how do you how does that relationship work it does make me think of actually i'm reading um the golden bowl by henry james at the moment and one of the characters um, tells his lover that you know their boats there are two boats together that are following the same course and he says well you know I'm not a good navigator so I'm going to have to follow you so it's as if she's she's taking the course of the bark of love and he's following her to in order to to understand it yeah that's just stuck out to me and I think probably I mean you know, I don't know. I'm not the biggest James expert. I'm not a big a big James scholar. But um, if, if someone told me that they think there's a good chance that that's related to the sonnet, then I wouldn't be surprised. I'm just trying to think of sort of a, like a, a, a simple, tedious reading would be like, it is a star to every wandering bark. You could say, well, ev- you know, anyone who feels lost and lonely, you just trust your heart. I guess that's the that's the that's yeah. the easy idea, isn't it? So maybe it's not yeah. so incomprehensible as a kind of banal as a you know banal commonplace, um, but it doesn't. Yeah, but that but then that would be that can that can be used to sort of instate and produce like more or less anything that you'd want. Yeah, and it's a very inflexible definition of love as well. Um, that insists in the for the whole first stanza here's what love is and it's not love unless you're talking about the ever fixed mark that can never be moved by any tempest or or disturbance or and as we get into the third quatrain or the passage of time um it is just the thing that that sustains and and lasts forever and it doesn't change at all which um you know it's not it's not it's not realistic and it's not like I think it really speaks to and you know obviously not a surprise coming from a renaissance sonnet right but it really speaks to a mindset where you idealize the person that you're that you're in love with that you're you know it, it takes away a certain amount of it takes away a certain amount of choice from the relationship as well that we would hope that we would have nowadays you know, that um, this sonnet is just about like a love that the people have fallen into and now they have no, they have no choice or no agency um, about what they're going to do about it. Um, but obviously the poem is always, is always undermining itself. And I, I tend to think that this poem is cheekier than people tend to give it the, the credit for being. Um, so I think, you know, the, in the bit in line 12 about bearing it out even to the edge of doom um, is I think 
you know, as I think about melodramatic, even for a Shakespeare sonnet, and I find the I find the closing couplet to be tongue in cheek as well, you know. Yeah, well, should we? Because let's have a maybe we just we could probably do with wrapping this up in like a couple of minutes, and maybe some some great comments on the um, the couplet would be would be in order. And I, I I'm really grateful for the, the couple of points you've made about the the, the third quad train, um, but certainly so that that couplet is you know after these twelve lines of love is this love is that it's whatever. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor no man ever loved. So sort of just denying, escaping from any any rejoinders. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's proved to be wrong, then, well, forget what I said. Uh, And, well, love is is, uh, meaningless anyway. Is that the sort of the tantrum that he's he's having here? Well, tantrum is the word, right? I think it's like, um, it's... uh, has has been described even as like bombastic um this uh, this this ending and it's not really a, it's not really a typical shakespeare ending i don't think because i've always felt that these two lines right are sort of a bit thrown away or there isn't you know he's he's leaving the the job half finished you know because this doesn't really add anything because um you know, we know he thinks he's, at this point, we know he thinks he's right about all these ideas that he's having. And there's no way that this is like a modesty. I mean, if it is modesty, you could consider it to be like a modesty topos, right? Of a sort of like, um, almost like a, like a recusatio in advance, you know, like, I'm sorry if this turns out to be wrong, I'll step back from it. I think you can't, you know, it's much more it's much more serious than that but also much more unserious at the same time as is jokey he's trying to get people to argue with him trying to get people to you know just say it's not the case and we'll and we'll 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 fight about it i i mean your point there about um not adding much um and I, I I can certainly see what you mean about maybe not being a, a typical Shakespeare sonnet ending. Um, I'd want to go back and read them all again to really be sure of that. But maybe it's an interesting point for us to end with that um, the end of the poem makes it clear that this is a sort of an argument, a performance, um, a, a disputation, yeah. and and maybe that the whole the whole of the poem has been in that in that form, um, you know, making definitions, um, sort of a- adjusting itself to an audience in a slightly more more obvious way than, than a lot of poems, um, but certainly at the end, uh, it's it's constructing itself as as a kind of essayistic argument which which it doesn't ha- necessarily have to do surely the couplet should be a couple of really nice resounding lines about like how great love is when like it never changes or, or something um so i wonder yeah i get, it just makes me think if, you, if people do read this out do they cut off the last two lines um if it's uh you know one of these sentimental occasions um I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I've never, I've never, I've never actually been at a wedding where this was, where this was read out. So I don't know. 
if they do. But not nor nor me, nor me actually. I'm just sort of imagining this world. Because it doesn't people. it doesn't end it doesn't end very well. You know, you can't really end at the end of line twelve. You just see bears out even to the edge of doom and then you've ended your your wedding sonnet on doom. Um whereas you're you're ending it on on loved, which is um which which is also ironic, I feel like, yeah. because this is one of those situations where uh, it's early modern English pronunciation. So you're supposed to be saying proved or when Shakespeare read this out, if he ever did, then he would have pronounced it proved or more like proved than, than proved anyway. Um, so, so, so it's also disappointing for us as modern readers, because it doesn't even rhyme when you get to the end. I mean, I feel, I feel like I've been looking at this stuff long enough that I'll take my, I'll take the half rhymes or quarter rhymes where I can, where I can get them. But sure, but it's disappointing. It's disappointing at the wedding, and yet this has still become this has still become such a such a popular sonnet. I think it's it's popularity. I mean, I'm not you know the more time we spend with it, the more down on it I seem to be. But it's and I do like it as a poem. Actually, I've spent a lot of time with it over the years, but it has many um, shortcomings compared to what people seem to want it to be. Mm. Okay, well, maybe that's a nice point to end because I feel like I feel like in this chat we haven't actually been too down on it. I think there is a lot to say against the poem and against the stance it's taken, but it mm. but there is but maybe the the more critical point is that um, this this poem very obviously in fate has been used in all sorts of ways. Uh, has got these complexities and these blind spots and and maybe yeah. and maybe these possibilities as well e- even in between yeah. the the posturing and uh it's really useful for us that someone like June Jordan has gone ahead and maybe pursued some of those possibilities and some of those gaps and um done something kind of more more likable or yeah. just, just that fits our taste a little bit more so um should we just get over to June Jordan now? Does that sound like a good move at about this point? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so June Jordan is, is, a, is a new poet for me for this podcast, but I'm, I'm really delighted to have her on my shelf now. So she lived from 1936 to 2002 and uh, as well as being a poet, was well in touch with political activism and and the the activism and the poetry aren't like separate things you, you see it all through her poetry um which is great and um, with those pro- kind of priorities you might say there's not really much of a necessity for her to be demonstrating an, an affiliation or connection with with these these great white uh, canonical figures like Shakespeare but it's an interesting point that she grew up reading Shakespeare and records being able to to recite Shakespeare's sonnets from memory easily early in her life and later on records of her university teaching including at the grassroots program Poetry for the the People also show Shakespeare's sonnets specifically as an important part of her teaching repertoire in the mid-90s and you know we don't have to go into biography to 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 work out that this is an interesting thing in her work but um, the you know the connections there in, in in a number of interesting ways that could be there to pursue. But when we open the collected poems of June Jordan, we do see um, plenty of opportunities to discuss that that relationship. Now, um, we will talk about her, her engagement with Shakespeare very directly. There's one nice introduction 
to these kinds of reading from the writer Sarah Miles, who was involved with, with, with editing the collected poems of June Jordan. I'm sorry, in, involved with editing. She was one of the co-editors of the collection, which I'm sure was a big piece of work. Um, and she stated how June Jordan fell in love first with words. She fell in love with Kipling and Shakespeare and Isaiah and Neruda and Whitman and with all the astonishing ways black people talk in America. So that's quite a range of things she loves and you know, maybe some surprising things we that she loves. Um, wouldn't necessarily expect to see Kipling on, on any decent person's list, but there we have it. Um, and maybe that's just an interesting quotation for putting an idea of love at the centre of the discussion, that um, in the discussions on this podcast, we've seen various metaphors, various ways of thinking about poetry of the past, but the idea of loving that old material you know, love as a, as a complex word, as a complex a complex construct. Um, that's not necessarily an idea that that we've pursued. So it's 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 great to have this uh, now. So we're going to read one particular poem, but Callie, I feel like you know you've you've thought quite deeply about like the way this sort of sonnet logic or sonnet argumentation system sort of runs through her poetry in, 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 in various ways, including these, these sunflower sonnets that she wrote in the 70s. So before we get stuck into her translation, her translation she calls it a translation of, of sonnet 116, do you want to say anything about the way that Renaissance sonnets seems to have an impact on her, on her work? Yeah, I think I wouldn't want to overgeneralize, but Certainly, there's something in this poem and in the Sunflower Sonnets as well, where the idea of argumentation, not quite to the point, I think it's more like debate argumentation than it is syllogism necessarily, because there are some sonnets that, that do seem sort of like almost syllogistic, you know, like if if love is this and we're in love, then shouldn't we be doing this? Which, you know, is the kind of thing you'll find that in Dunn, you'll find that in like Andrew Marvell, you know, you'll find that not necessarily that all these are sonneteers, but you know, you'll find that um, in in other in other writers of this period. Whereas often in the the Shakespeare, there are these, there are these other other levels, these other elements and alternative internal structures that kind of compete with the main like syllogistic arguing um, and I think that's really what Jordan is engaging with the playing off the expected structure whether that's the original of the sonnet she's now translating or the original structure which um, uh, in the sunflower sonnets is always like overflowing like nothing ends in the right place in terms of where sentences end or stanzas end or where rhymes are found and rhythms are found, nothing is in the right place. Everything is always slightly overflowing its confines or contracting to make space. And to me, it feels like, you know, she's exceeding the the, the bounds, the, the strictures of the, the sonnet, but she's also chosen to engage with those strictures. Um, and, you know, we all, just because of the nature of like what, most of our educations are like we probably in our lives start by loving 
writers who we then later go on to find out are maybe not the people that we want to align ourselves with politically. I think everybody's had that experience, but it, it, and it's particularly it's very particularly stark in Jordan's case, especially with the kind of right, the kind of fiercely political writer that she becomes. But yeah, her work is full of these like amazing, uh, amazing engagements, amazing contrasts, and again paradoxes. I can see why this poem and its all its, its oddness appeals to her sensibility in some ways. Okay, so shall we? So thanks for that that, that overview and. Um... Yeah, it's, it, I'm, I'm working my way through through uh, Directed by Desire, which is her collective poems, and, and just keeping my eyes on that as we go along. Um, do you want to read this this translation of the sonnet that she's done, and then we can start sort of taking it apart for 20 minutes or so, and I think that'll be really, really enjoyable. Yeah, sure. I will read it. Um, I apologise to listeners for my accent, but I'm just going to read it my regular accent. Shakespeare's 116 sonnet in Black English translation. Don't let me mess up partner happiness because the troubles start and I ain't got the heart to deal. That won't be real about love if I push come to shove, just punk, not hardly. Hey, love do not cooperate with cop-out provocations. No, storm come, storm go away, but love stays steady if you're ready or you're not. True love stays steady, true love stay hot. Such a nice poem. Like if I've ever, no one's ever invited me to read a poem at a wedding, but um, I don't know, might might entertain reading this one if if they were worthy of it. It's certainly it, like when when you compare it with the with the Shakespeare sonnet, it, it it well, there's a number of things to say. One of them is that it sort of rearranges all the points into a way that makes more sense, but it still does have that distinctive sonnet structure of um, making a po- coming out of the gate, making a point, um, and then uh, expressing the opposite side of it in the second stanza, and then kind of bringing everything together. Not that she's arguing against herself necessarily, because the first one starts with a negative, don't let me mess up partner happiness, not hardly, hey, and you know, and then here's what's here's what's going to happen instead, which is exactly what happens in the Shakespeare one. Is let me not admit, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Um, so you've got these um, this kind of this kind of push and pulling um, in in both directions, or the defining the central concern of the poem in, in the negative. And I I. I... I think that's a nice, nice introduction to to, to the structure of the poem and, and it's and how it works. And I think also stimulating about this is how when you you know you can enjoy the whole thing as kind of a sonnet sonnety experience, but then you start looking into the comparisons and realizing she has sort of tr- translated quite closely in in some places, right? In in her way, she's translated relatively closely, or she's. Not sorry, not to say she's stuck to the original, but she's taken something like marriage and then created this phrase partner happiness and admitted petiments. Right, it feels like she's had to think about that, and she just translated that to mess up, mess up. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's 
I, I don't see those as simplifications, like a mess up. Okay, that's a simpler phrase in some in some respects, but um, that that seems just as expressive and expansive. No, it's a much much more expressive and expansive idea than than admitting impediments, because messing up is much more human. Yeah, and admitting impediments comes from this from religious and legal language right is that you know it's part of the the formality of the of the wedding ceremony about the impediments to the the couple being being joined in marriage um but with partner happiness it's much it's less official but much more broad just that it is possible to mess up partner happiness um and yeah i think she's thinking i don't know you know to what I don't know that it's necessarily helpful to think about like to what extent is does this come out of her you know experience as a as a queer person or as a black person who um, has has a particular relationship with um, like officialdom and uh, you know maybe these these kinds of institutions partner happiness is you know however wherever it is in Jordan's own experience that that emanates from partner happiness is a much more expansive term and it doesn't even you know it's interesting because I I feel I feel inclined to stand up for any of these love poems meaning of love not being solely about romantic love and I think that you know, talking about like, or not being solely about like romantic and sexual couple form type of type of love. Um, and they both have a surprisingly like, if you want to do like, you know, I'm I'm saying this with a tiny bit of my tongue in my cheek, but if you want to do like a relationship anarchist reading of these poems, then you can. And I think it makes it, I think it's, I think it's good, um, like, the storm go away, but love stays steady. True love stays steady. True love stay hot. And that hot, we maybe think having, or does that have a like slight like sexual connotation maybe? Um, but the thing about true love is that that's supposed to be, even in Jordan's version, that's supposed to be the steady core of love that's supposed to be the real version of love that that stays the way it is and doesn't alter so I think if you're going to make like a if you're going to make a good argument about that then you want to be able to say well the sexual aspect of relationship might change or it might be there or not be there at different times but that doesn't necessarily invalidate what this poem is saying. I don't think it invalidates what the Shakespeare poem is saying either, but I, I certainly think that this is a poem that's written in a very, um, you know, I don't mean this in a kind of like wishy-washy liberal way, but in, in an inclusive way. And in an, or maybe maybe the, the term I mean is like a, um, a kind of holding way, a kind of a, um, a, a, way, of, a way of holding space mm. for different I reference. Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with that that inclusivity and sort of we don't need to sort of interpret partner happiness because what's 
the essential part of a partner is that is that just is that is it just having two people in some kind of link or two you know they don't even need to be human um some kind of connection um that brings you brings you happiness um there's so many ways that it can be fulfilled and she arrives at the idea of true love i mean i think that's maybe what uh, is, is 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 appealing about this as well that that we get to talking about true something at the end. Shakespeare's talking about error at the end of his poem, but he starts out with 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 true. I don't I don't know if that's that's kind of an I don't think that's strong enough to call it an inversion of, of the form. But um, you know, true is is used as a sort of useful concept to think about the the unmessed up partner happiness, the partner happiness that hasn't been troubled, that um, hasn't been escaped from. Maybe, Joe, like, I, I feel like sort of we've got a decent sense of like the top and tail. And maybe, uh, you know, we, we could dwell more on that word steady, which, uh, which I think is pretty awesome as well as a, as a reading of the, the tempests. In the Shakespeare. And as a reading of as a reading of fixed as well, like the difference yeah. between steady and fixed as well is a really um a really important Yeah, thing. so steady, it's always going to be moving, but steady will be all right, it was fixed, something different. It was in that middle that maybe we get some sense of the the middle of the poem that I think we get quite an interesting sense of the the politics of the poem or, or the politics of this kind of, of love and the sense of a um a speaking back or a, you know a rejoinder to to Shakespeare maybe more explicitly so that's that's like the stanza and it's 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 divided off as a stanza as a four line four line stanza so a, a quatrain it's the only quatrain in the poem actually um so it links to the previous one that it says it that won't be real about love if I push come to shove just punk and then the middle quatrain not hardly hey Love, do not cooperate with cop-out provocations. No. And that idea of a cop-out provocation, that idea of cooperating, well, what do you think, what, what is a cop-out provocation? Is that something about Shakespeare or is that something else entirely? I think, yeah, I think partly what, what she's objecting to with those two exclamations in that stanza is the Shakespeare elements as being corporate provocations. Like she's identifying that he's he's saying something similar to this, but she's also kind of, she also thinks, I think, in this poem, the way I read it, she is criticizing the the bits in the Shakespeare poem that seem like cop-outs as well. Um, but the thing that to me seems the most like a cop-out provocation in the Shakespeare poem is the end of the poem, the if this be error and upon me proved, I never written or no man ever loved. But if you look at the Jordan, I think the equivalent of that, maybe the key to understanding this poem, if you really want to see it as a translation, is to know that some things are out of order. And I think this thing that won't be real about love if I push come to shove just punk I think that part is the closest equivalent to the end part like if I'm just kidding about this if I just if I just punk then um you know if I'm just fooling about this then it will demonstrate that 
that I'm not for real. You know, that won't be real about love if I just punk. Um, and so her not hardly there and the no as well. These are both objections to her poems equivalent, her translations equivalent of um, the the end of the Shakespeare poem. So everything's kind of out of order. So while this is in the place and it does look superficially like the, the oh no, it isn't ever fixed mark. Um, in fact, the, the fixedness of the, the fixedness is dealt with in the third and final stanza of this poem. What she's turned the second stanza of the poem over to doing is um, is criticizing Shakespeare's like cop-out provocation. And she sees it as a provocation, which is the same thing that the, the critics say about it, that, that Stephen Booth um, says about is it Steve, I think it's Stephen Booth that says it is bombast. Um, and so she says something very similar in I think by by saying it doesn't, she doesn't cooperate with copyright provocations. I think that's her version of saying, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cope with all of this. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cooperate with, um, with this this bombast, this uh, literary saber rattling. Um, so as much as she does, and I think it's quite right to say, as much as she does love these earlier poets. Um, and her writing comes from a, a background of, of that in her education. She also is not afraid to um, just call them out for, for their error. I, I, I love that we've got bombast on the table, sort of, it's the kind of, you know, it's, it's the kind of vocabulary for tone that would have been meat and drink for critical for close reading lessons in the 60s or 50s and uh yeah definitely and that's where this that, that's where that's part of why to, to answer your first question of the podcast as part of why these sonnets are so popular today is because they make for great practical criticism as they make for great close reading in a seminar and that is the form that 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 teaching English literature has has taken in a lot of a lot of the places where that activity is still done. And um, so, you know, the the that's been part of the 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 sonnet as a like to be decoded thing is part of its contemporary um, reception as well. And more to the point, part of its 20th century reception and probably the context in which Jordan would have come across it, right? Like a classroom situation where you're trying to understand how the sonnet operates in terms of metaphor and, and rhetoric. Um, and so she 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 learns that trade and then also uses it in order to turn the poem on its head with the sonnet. And I I I, abs- I absolutely agree with you, by the way, about like um, the whole edifice of English literature being set up on poems that are conducive to be read in the way that we want to read poems. Um, exactly. And w- with with Jordan, it's it's weird because I feel like we've, on the one hand, we have just got started, but also, uh, like if we if we just finish quite soon, I I don't mind. Like we've sort of got the idea. Like we've we've got these usable. Um, things and we can just take those and think to ourselves whether we like them or not whereas with Shakespeare you're kind of 
you know, you're still squinting three months later thinking, oh, what is the ever fixed mark? Like, we don't have to have that same level of investment in the partner happiness, but that might be a more interesting um, way to start thinking about lives and relationships and solidarity and how, how, how to not cooperate as much as it is to cooperate and 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 maybe um you know that that if if we if we saw that inclusiveness in the poem it's an inclusiveness that that comes with with a certain kind of exclusion that means it's not yeah. um it's not the willy wishy washy liberal um statement that that you, you know it, it almost could be and I like. I mean, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to sort of think. Of, is there is there like any more sort of little bits and bobs that we might pick out in in terms of connection? And and one thing I was just I thinking I was thinking about um, before we started is is that edge of doom which we fortunately did come up when we talked about the Shakespeare that it would be a bad way to end the poem that we're we're talking about doom, um, and even if it's saying you're going to you know there's this particular kind of love that will keep you going right up until the apocalypse um i mean do you and i'm just i was just trying to look at that i was looking at the the lines like love stays steady if you if you ready or you not yeah and that felt to me like a sort of reading of the doom um so taking taking quite an abstract theological concept and translating that to again to quite a you know colloquial colloquial form is 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 that just part of the the strategies she's using or is there a different um sort of energy in that kind of trans translation and she and she does call it a translation so yeah definitely um when it comes to doom i guess maybe it's something that we see that i've seen being like said a lot, especially in the context of like climate crisis and, you know, the responses to the pandemic that have hit ethnic minority communities in wealthy Western countries like Britain and the US where Jordan lived most hard is that people point out that, you know, for for many people, for, for Black and Indigenous and colonised people, the idea of an approaching apocalypse, you know, the, the moment of apocalypse is in the past. The apocalypse has already happened. The apocalypse, and it's continued to happen, the apocalypse is imperialism. And that's something that, that and colonialism, and that's something that Jordan is, is acutely aware of and that she writes poems about constantly. And she's always writing, you know, poems about, you know, what, might be happening in, in in Palestine or in South Africa or in any other of a number of like global struggles uh, that she that she's engaged with in her in her life. Um, so there there is that maybe I think maybe she's a bit like maybe scornful of the idea of doom in the way that Shakespeare sees it because Shakespeare is a very and again here you're saying he's setting up a a a template that comes to be followed by a lot of a lot of writers in his mold. Obviously, he's not the first person to to think about this, but the presence of the fear of one's own death in Shakespeare's sonnets, like his fear of mortality, his fear of aging, and his desire that through 
his love affairs, something of him should go on to continue existing. And that that being part of love affairs, not just in the sense of like having children, but in the sense of participating in participating with the universe um, in the, the big activity of recreation, you know, whether that's because he's talking about the springtime and, and um, the, the, the darling buds of May coming back and that makes him want to want to participate in this big universal turning over of new life. Um, but Jordan, the thing about it is that Jordan is also interested in that. And if I can just talk about the sunflower sonnets that we mentioned before, just briefly, I kind of read the sunflower sonnets as like relationship anarchist poems as well, because in sunflower sonnet number one, she's talking about how, um, uh, she's talking about how if I tell you how my heart swings wide enough to motivate flirtations with the, with the trees. Um, and she's, you know, she's saying like, is that going to be okay with her lover? Like she, uh, is, is, is her lover going to believe this? And then um, in line six, she says, or must I say the streets are bare unless it is your door I face. So she's saying, you know, are you going to believe me if I say um, that I hold my, that, you know, I feel like I want to, to engage in flirtations with the trees. I feel like I want to go out into the world and, 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 and engage with it physically and have physical love, whether that's sexual love or, or just a kind of way of being in the world. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And she's saying to her lover, you know, are you going to believe me if, if, if I go about and do this, but I also keep, um, keep a part of, uh, you know, keep a, a part of myself for you as well. Um, or are, are you not going to believe me unless I say that you're the only person I'm getting happiness from? And so it is an interesting way of like, um, of navigating a, the, that particular problem. And you could say it's like, oh, these are like modern relationships, 20th century relationships. Um, and Jordan was bisexual, people might might not know that. And so so some of these are queer relationships. And so you're thinking about, well, I don't think that it's just 20th century, but I don't think you can explain that by saying, oh, well, she's 20th century. If Shakespeare had been living in the 20th century, then he would have had more modern attitudes to relationships as well, which I, I dare say is true. But I also think that there's something in Jordan that's like, well, maybe a lot of people still believe some of this like old fashioned, like all or nothing, love is not love if it alteration finds. Um, so here's here's an update to it. Here's how people could, could coexist in a way and love each other in a way that um that 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 makes more sense and that's what she's talking about in sunflower sonnet number two like you know the perfection for her would be to be able to have a relationship where sometimes you're side by side with the other person sometimes you're off doing your own thing um so yeah so i think her version of a Shakespeare sonnet, whether it's her translation or these sonnets which are doing maybe a similar job, but in order to express a different idea. Um, all of that is, you know, her 
her version. It's all part of her take on it. It's all part of her her philosophy of love defined not exclusively, but certainly significantly in opposition to the like Shakespearean traditional sonnet model. Well, Callie, I feel like I'm I'm really glad to have been introduced to to June Jordan and to this this poem in particular. And as as they're only short, maybe we should just maybe we could round off by reading the two poems out again, just having sure, that at the end. Um, if you think this, we're, we're ready for that. Yeah, is that okay? Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. And Shakespeare's 116th sonnet in Black English translation. Don't let me mess up partner happiness, because the trouble start, and I ain't got the heart to deal. That won't be real about love, if I push come to shove. Just punk, not hardly, hey. Love do not cooperate with cop-out provocations, no. Storm come, storm go away, but love stay steady, if you ready or not. True love stay steady, true love stay hot. Times have changed so clear your 